And please join your hearts together with me in a word of prayer. And gracious Heavenly Father, uh, I confess uh, that I am so thankful for the opportunity to worship you. Uh, And I do so with a confession that, Lord, there is enough within any given week that would cause my heart to drift, and Lord, in the drifting, would, would wrinkle my soul, and Lord, create a confusion, and Lord, distraction that would put me off the path. And I need to be here. I need to hear your word. I need to worship you. I need you, Lord, to iron out those wrinkles, and Lord, to, to, to take once again my, me by the hand and lead me, Lord, in a direct path that would please you and honor you and glorify your name. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us even now, even as I open your word, and that, Lord, you would would move in our hearts now that we might follow you uh, to the glory and, and, and the majesty, Lord, that you've called us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm going to invite you to join me once again as we continue our journey toward Christmas. We're one week closer than we were last week. Get your shopping done. Now, we've been looking at the... uh, Last week, I began a series of studies looking at the postcard snapshots of the Old Testament lives. And for some of these studies, the postcards will actually be a very brief passage, a glimpse into uh, a profound piece of character. But for others, uh, other messages, uh, it's going to be more of a panorama a perspective. Uh, Last week was a little bit of both. When we looked at Joshua, there was a panorama of the entire book of Joshua that was then crystallized into a single moment of clarity, where the sum total of Joshua's life came down to a very single credo, and the credo was this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You may remember that. We made that our credo as well. Now, this, this week will be a similar panorama as we will look at the entire book of Judges, but, but, but what, we, what will make this a little bit different is that when this picture is crystallized into a clear focus, what we find is not an individual but a, a group photo that is united by a common persona, and a persona that each and every single one of us will need to heed lest we find ourselves photoshopped into that picture as well as part of that group. So let us get started here. Last week, as we marched our way through the book of Joshua, we left Joshua uh, as he was bidding his, his people, God's people, farewell. And the whole nation was sealing their commitment to God in stone. And they were crying out to God with one voice, We will serve the Lord. And that is what we took to heart, making it our story as well. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, ending Joshua like that may sound like a spiritual version of a fairy tale, and you might expect to find something like, and they lived happily ever after at the end of that book. I mean, isn't that how fairy tales end? But the fact is, the Bible isn't a fairy tale. It is a book of reality where bad things happen to good people, Uh, where heroes often fail, and and where good guys sometimes do break bad, and while ordinary people often do extraordinary things, we find that their lives are messy and not every story has a happy ending. 
Now, I carry that thought into our journey today because we come to the book of Judges. Uh, It is just that, a very human story. Or better yet, it is an entire catalog, a collection of very human stories. And so as you turn with me to the book of Judges, in looking at those stories, we are going to have to face some very cold, hard facts in order to be able to do something about them. So what are the cold, hard facts? The first is that we find at the beginning of chapter 2, the, the happy ending of Joshua becomes a good start for the book of Judges. There we read in chapter 2, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel, each went to his own inheritance to possess the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of, of Joshua. That is really good stuff. I look back at Joshua and I have to admit, they actually said what they meant and meant what they said. They were a nation of Horton the Elephants. Uh, they, They did it. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. The problem is, however, that there's a shelf life written into that heart of commitment. We read there, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Any thought of a happy ending is crushed by those last two words. So, because when Joshua leaves the scene, the, the story of Judges actually begins, and then by the time it's over with, it's a completely different thing. Turn to the end of the book of Judges, if you have it in your Bible there, and instead of, 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 of having it as the introduction to cold hard facts, it probably should be better to say concluding with the cold hard facts, because by the end of the book, well, things have turned bad. There is a phrase that is repeated several times in chapter 18, verse 1, and in chapter 19, verse 1, and it is a phrase that closes the book in chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What you discover is that the book of Judges ends up being a book of disobedience and disgrace and defeat and anarchy and chaos. It, it, it is, it's as one commentator has written, a dismal account of Israel's darkest days. It begins with disobedience and ends in horror and disgrace. It seems that even God's own nation wasn't immune to a sequence of destruction that has proven common to many of the world's greatest civilizations. All you have to do is consider any failed civilization, let alone Israel, and you can trace a sequence of destruction where a nation is forged with great courage and usually forged by that great courage by people of faith, but then something happens. They go from great courage to liberty and from liberty to abundance and from abundance to leisure, and then from leisure to selfishness, and from selfishness to complacency, and from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependency, and from dependency to weakness, and from weakness, finally, into destruction and bondage and decay. That is the legacy of this book, and sadly, too, too often, it becomes the legacy of God's people. And while we would prefer to close our eyes and look elsewhere, it is a cold, hard legacy that we need to face and take to heart lest we likewise fail. 
So again, we are going to have to face some very cold, hard facts in order to be able to do something about them. What a contrast Judges is to Joshua. In Joshua, there was joy and achievement and accomplishment, but in in Judges, we have sorrow and failure. In in Joshua, we have strength, but in Judges, we have weakness. In Joshua, we had victory, but in Judges, we have defeat. In Joshua, we had unity and order, but in Judges, we have disunity and anarchy, as in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you may ask yourself, how did it come to this? And the answer is, not in a moment, but over a period of time. Let me just give an overview of the book. From From beginning to end, Judges covers approximately 300 years, and that is a lot of time. 300 years, where we meet a sequence of 13 very unique leaders who were called Judges. Now, that name may be a little bit bit misleading. They were not kings, as we would think of them, but they were instead primarily very ordinary people that God chose to perform extraordinary tasks of delivering the tribes of Israel from the hands of their enemies. Almost like divine gunslingers in the Wild West, when things went critical, God selected these men and at least one woman to step up to the plate. And he empowered them with his spirit, and they were able then to repulse the enemy and buy Israel a moment, a moment of peace. Now when I say that they were ordinary people, I mean it. Uh, Let me read their names. My guess is that you may recognize, may recognize two or three of the names, but not much more than that. In order, in chapter 3, we have Othniel, Caleb's nephew and Israel's first judge, followed by Ehud, who is called in the King James, interestingly enough, a sinister man. Do you know why? Was he a car dealer? No. He was sinister simply because he was left-handed. That's the old English way of describing somebody, a southpaw. Uh, He was left-handed, and instead of being dexterous, he was sinister. I just thought I'd toss that in there for your benefit and knowledge. Anyhow, after then, Ahud, you have Shamgar, who had the uh, distinction of winning a battle against 600 Philistines uh, single-handedly using only an ox goad as a weapon. In chapter 4, you have Deborah, the original Xena warrior princess, who went to war along with her fellow judge Barak, whose name, by the way, in Hebrew means lightning. Next, in chapters 6 through 8, we have Gideon. Now, you probably should recognize his name. And he's followed by Tola. Do you remember that name? Or Ty, and then Ty, uh, Jair in chapter 10. And then in quick succession, we have Jephthah Ibzman, uh, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and then finally, Samson. (laughs) Now, how how many were you able to recognize? How many of you recognized at least one of those names? Okay. Uh, How many recognized two of those names? How many recognized three? How many recognized all 13? (laughs) It's fascinating to read their stories, and it's worth it to do it. But, and there's no way that I would even try to cover them in one sermon this morning or even make a series out of all their names. But you have your Bible and you can read those stories on your own. There are 13 episodes that make up this book, 13 dramas, 13 adventures 
led by very simple people and most with very evident flaws. You have Samson with his oversized ego and libido. You have Gideon and his cowardly heart. Each one of them uh, are unique and utterly human personalities. But the one common thread that ties them all together is that God chose them. Why? I do not know. It wasn't because of any obvious superior trait other than that they may have been the only one in their generation, in their day and their age, who was willing or able to respond to God when he offered a simple call. But the fact is God chose them and it was evident that in choosing them he also enabled them through the unique anointing of the Holy Spirit to serve beyond themselves and above their abilities so much so that that, that they didn't, what they did wasn't about them, it was about God and, and his deliverance of his people. What really strikes me, however, about judges is not that there were 13 different judges, uh, but that there was in fact just one group of people who stand at the center of this photo we look at this morning. One group of people who repeat one cycle that is played out 13 times again and again and again and again. 13 times recycled in such a way that it defines them. One cycle repeated again and again that becomes a habit. 13 times and it and it wraps itself around the heart of Israel like a boa constrictor, squeezing the life out of its prey. And that is the portrait snapshot painted by the cold, hard facts of Judges. And we find it best described in chapter 2, as you heard it read to you this morning. Look at chapter 2 in Judges. All you have to do is read verses 11 through 17, and you've actually read the entire book, because while the names and the players change and the plot lines might twist themselves into a new adventure, the fact is it's the same cycle over and over and over again. It is one that begins with disobedience. Look at that in verses 11 through 13. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals and they forsook the Lord. Disobedience. Disobedience that then led to captivity. Look at verse 14. They were given over to the hands of the plunderers. And they were sold into the hands of their enemies. Disobedience now to captivity. And that captivity then produced misery. Look at verse 15. They were greatly distressed. Such misery that prompted them to cry out to the Lord. Look at, look at the end of verse 18. What was it that moved the Lord into action? The Lord was moved to pity by something very special. Their groaning. Their cry. Why? Because of their oppression and their affliction. The fact is, it is only when you hurt enough that many people return to God and cry out in prayer. It is sad, but it's true. And I've discovered over the years that people oftentimes do not turn to God until they have hit rock bottom and they've hit it hard. So you have disobedience and captivity and distress, crying, and then finally, 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 verse 16, deliverance. Then the Lord raised up judges who, were, who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. You have deliverance 
And that's where the story really should stop. And the tagline then should appear 13 times. The tagline should be, and they lived happily ever after, after deliverance. But it doesn't, because this is a cycle. And the deliverance created conditions of relaxation. Look at verse 17. They didn't listen to the judges. They turned aside quickly. And voila, they were right back where they had started in verse 19. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act even more corruptly than their fathers. I think it was the philosopher George Santayana who wrote, those who do not know their history their history's mistakes, are then condemned to repeat it. So again, the the issue before us this morning is, are we prepared to face some cold, hard facts in order to be able to do something meaningful about them? There's one more cold, hard fact. Among the different verses that are used to define judges, there is one that captures my attention. In chapter 2, verse 10, After that whole generation, Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts. A verse like that should make you think, shouldn't it? What type of faith are we passing on to the next generation? Youth, children, ask yourself, what are you picking up that will define your faith and what it means to you and what it means for you to belong to God? The generation that entered the promised land with Joshua lived with the words of Moses ringing in their ears, words like Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. These words which I am commanding to you today will be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and, 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 and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We call that discipleship. But for some reason in Judges, that diligence, that daily discipline, that discipleship had disappeared, had dissolved. And I suppose that the great lesson here is one of discipleship, the type of discipleship that defies erosion, the type of discipleship that is defined by our Lord Jesus Christ. There were terms that were laid out by Jesus, who is our Lord. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself how often? Daily and follow me. Linger on those words. Take up his cross daily, not on Sunday or not just for a season, but daily, keeping things fresh taking up the cross and following Jesus. Given our day and age, I'm not quite sure exactly how this fits. Just recently, not very long ago, Thomas Bergler, a youth ministry specialist and a professor at Huntington University, sparked a very robust debate with his book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity. You can just imagine by the title, it's like tossing a hand grenade into the terms of theology. His article in Christianity Today entitled, When Are We Going to Grow Up? hit a nerve like no other. Listen to what he describes. He says it this way. 
The house lights go down, spinning, multicolored lights sweep the auditorium. A rock band launches into a rousing opening song. Ignore everyone else. This time is just about you and Jesus, proclaims the lead singer. The music changes to a slow dance tune, and the people sing about falling in love with Jesus. A guitarist sporting skinny jeans and a soul patch, sorry Grant, um, closes the worship set with a prayer that begins this way, hey God, hey God. The spotlight then falls on a speaker who tells entertaining stories, cracks a few jokes, and assures everyone that God is not mad at you. He loves you unconditionally. If you ask the people here why they go to church and what they value about their faith, they'll say something like, having faith helps me deal with my problems. In their landmark national study of youth and religion, researchers found that the majority, even those who are highly involved in church activities, are inarticulate about religious matters. They seldom use words like faith, salvation, sin, or even Jesus to describe their beliefs. Instead, they return again and again to the language of personal fulfillment to describe why God and Christianity are important to them. The phrase, feel happy, appeared over 2,000 times in 267 interviews. They discovered that today, people of all ages not only accept Christianized version of adolescent narcissism, they often celebrate it as authentic spirituality. God, faith, and the church all exist to help me and my problems. The research team labeled this pattern of religious beliefs moralistic, therapeutic deism. A belief in a God who remains in the background of their lives, always watching over them, ready to help them, but not at the center of their lives. Back to Judges, the critical verse, chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation, Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. If I could add anything to that particular verse, not only did the generation grow up not knowing the Lord and what he had done, but they could not care less. What a contrast to the words that Jesus gives his disciples to you and me. If anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In fact, he goes on, he says, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Further into that study, the National Study of Youth and Religion, there was a statistic that just chilled me to the core. It indicated that in all the interviews, when asked, not one person could think of one thing, one cause, one belief, one thing for which they would be willing to give their life. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. I confess that I, like many, maybe like you, have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I'm willing to serve him, but have to face the fact that I just can't afford to let my faith ride It must be handled with diligence and care. So again, the issue this morning is, are you prepared? Are we prepared to face some cold, hard facts and do something about them? 
One of my mentors, Gordon McDonald, he responded to that article that I, I read and uh, mentioned uh, about juvenile faith, and he wrote this. He said, when one who is wise reads Christian biographies, he looks for men and women who have likely fulfilled their role in the midst of much suffering. Why? Because they did what they did with their lives on the line. They were willing to die for it. We don't ask if they were authentic or real, as we do of people who have not suffered for their calling. We know that they are deep people because we have learned of their faithfulness, a faithfulness that has shined in the darkest hours. I'm not sure if I've shared this before here at Ebenezer, after, what, three years of being together with you. But even more at my age, I'm afraid I forget that I'm repeating myself until my kids remind me. But over the years, I have had a, a very special, simple testimony of such a person tucked away in my files with a refrain that has continued to, to convict me. It was a refrain made by a young pastor in Zimbabwe, Africa. In this day of shallow commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I was moved by his words, by his creed. If you will, (laughs) it was found written in his Bible. As is becoming almost a daily occurrence around the world, one day during a service at his church, they were attacked by terrorists. Uh, He stood his ground holding off the terrorists to track while his people were able to flee. And then he fell in a hail of bullets and and in the, full, in the front flyleaf of his blood-soaked Bible, in bold print, he had written these words, words that had, had, he had kept every day that he carried his Bible, and it said this, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My, my past is redeemed, my presence makes sense, my future is secure, I am finished and done with low living and sight walking and small planning and smooth knees and colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence or prosperity or position or promotions or plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right First, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, and I lean on his presence, and I walk by patience, and I'm uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My, gate, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up and prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus, and I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner is clear. What banner flies over your life? By what name are you willing to be known? 
each and every day. You may be at that point where you are ready to lay it on the line and break the cycle of your own. Where with a heart of confession, you're done with playing around with God. You may have enjoyed seasons of blessing, but just as easily have wandered away. Following Jesus is not a casual convenience. It calls for heartfelt commitment that is kept fresh daily, diligently, no matter the cost. As for me and my life, as for us and our fellowship, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we come to a close, I just want to share a prayer. It was prayed by Whiston. I've shared it, I think, before, but again, I have the divine right to repeat myself. It was called the snowflake prayer. It's a prayer that is prayed. In his presentation, he says, a snowflake on its own melts quickly. But when prayed consistently over time, it builds up into a glacier. And a glacier has such force, it can carve out rock. And this has become a daily prayer with me. One that I take into heart and pray together and I pray together with you now. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, in obedience to your claim on my life, I surrender myself to you this day. All that I am and all that I have to be holy and unconditionally to you and for your using. Take me away from myself and my sinful preoccupation with myself and use me as you will, when you will, and with whom you will. Take away by loving force all that I will not give to you and help me to know that having been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but that he lives in me so that the life I live today, I would live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. This I pray in his name. This we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.